This is Application Paranoia, Season 2, Episode 18. Welcome again to Application Paranoia, a podcast dedicated to application security, DevSecOps, and AppScan. I'm Colin Bell, and joining me again are my amazing colleagues, Rob Cuddy and Chris Stewart. In this episode, we're also excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Owens. Rob will introduce us to but a few minutes, and I'm sure you'll be very excited to hear what he has to say. So, hi, Rob. How are you? Hey, Colin. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I was on vacation for a week. Woohoo! Nice. I was away for a week, so I actually, I actually got to leave the country. I took my car and we drove to Scotland and saw some castles. I saw some distilleries. I... The most important part, of course, some <laughs> of castle course. distilleries. <laughs> of course. Well, I... those sorts of things. I, I would love to say I was on vacation, um, but uh, it w- wasn't quite. I got a firsthand lesson in um, having to pivot plans when you're trying to do something. So um, went out to my parents, was trying to help replace another piece of the floor in a place where they're living, and uh, it turned into a roof job. And so we had... Those are basically had, the same thing. Yeah, totally the same thing, right? We, we saw a little bit of water damage, so my brother and I kind of... Uh, he took a crowbar and went through the ceiling and long story short, everything was just uh, a mess up there. And, you know, and is, you this know a, what, is this a, is this a single story dwelling or double? Story? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a mobile home. So oh, it's, it's uh, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like plywood uh, with shingles on top and um, a metal yeah, cap yeah. over on top of that. So it was really fun uh, there, but you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? So at one point trying to figure out it's Florida now hurricane season. So it rains every day. Um, it might be for five minutes. It might be for 25 minutes. Nobody really knows, but it rains pretty much every day. So we got a giant tarp and tried to cover up this section where we knew water was leaking in so that we could at least be able to work. Um, and in trying to think, what are we going to do to hold this, the, uh, tarp down, my, we ended up going with 96 tube socks from Walmart filled with either <laughs> sand or pea-sized pebbles. So I spent the better part of a couple of afternoons and e- in evenings filling tube socks with sand and rocks. So socks with rocks. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was great. So, um, so yeah, and we, we eventually did actually get the floor down. We, we were going to demo the old one and put a new one down and we just, uh, we went the lazy way out and just took a piece of plywood, you know, made a template and screwed it right onto the existing floor. So that's, <laughs> at least it's, it's sturdy. So, um, so yeah, you know, the things you do when you run into construction. So that kind of stuff is fun. Yeah. It's never fun, is it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it really no, isn't. no, but I got to, I mean, I got to give another shout out to my brother and just watching him kind of go, oh, okay, let's try this. And just being able to pivot on the fly and think through stuff. Uh, you, you really hone your problem solving skills when you're doing stuff like that. So With building, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. And, and Chris, yeah. what's, what's been going on in your world, Chris? How are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, entering fall uh, season, which, as you know, is peak foliage season coming up soon in New England. Oh, yeah, the trees are turning, and people are going to be like, I can't wait to see the leaves. Yes, people can take <laughs> so it. Really the season is coming upon us. Yeah. And do they like the leaves when they're on the ground or on the trees? You see, I uh, can't figure it out myself. I personally couldn't care less either way, but <laughs> Mrs. I, loves I prefer it, them so. on the trees. So when they That's what she says, the tree, too. Stay there. Less, uh, less, less raking would be ideal, yeah. but sadly that is not my lot. I will be raking soon. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> but um, it's interesting uh, because you mentioned construction and uh, building, and I came across something that I thought was absolutely hysterical. But it turns out you can steal the Empire State Building. No <laughs> like the way! Actual building. Yeah. So there was a newspaper that wanted to kind of draw light to some of the the bad practices that existed in 
in New York City in the boroughs that that are there, and they they had they had a deed transfer notarized and everything. <laughs> what is it? The original King Kong star Faye Ray was listed as a witness. No, and the notary the notary was apparently a famous bank robber, Willie Sutton or something like that. So yeah, they owned the building for a hot minute, and they're like, "This is my building now." Nice. I mean, they returned it just it was just to draw attention to it, but it's like, wow. Wow. You can steal a building. <laughs> Dang. It's a uh, sky identity theft. Yeah. It's terrible. Oh, man. Dang. That's, wow. That is really yeah, funny, though. Pretty wild. <laughs> like, thinking to myself, I kind of want to own it for a hot minute. That'd be fun. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> Was it a minute in the future? No, it was not a minute in not the future. Not a minute in the future, yes. <laughs> what would be, Wouldn't that be wild? That would be. Yeah, so well, what, yeah, if, you could, if you could own any building that way, would the Empire State Building be your first choice? Yeah, it sure would. It's one of the most recognizable names and buildings in the world. Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can get away with it in any other place. So yeah, I was thinking, could you York. like own the Eiffel Tower for 10 minutes yeah. or you know, something <laughs> like that, right? Well, I now own the Louvre. <laughs> own the <laughs> All these paintings are mine. Yes. Oh, I'm only thinking it went missing on my watch. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I just took back my property. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. You know, there's a second Mona Lisa, right? Yeah. Well, but the, the second one is in like a random hall in the Prada Museum in Madrid. And it's like, it's, if you think about how guarded the one in the Louvre is versus this one in the Prada Museum, it's kind of like, you know, it's the difference between going to like Bank of America and an ATM at the Walmart or something yeah, like do, that, right? Do they have a sign that says, please no steal or something? No, it's just, that's the thing. It's right that's on the, the corner. The security. It's a corner of a hallway. Like, you just, it's like, wow. And the, the, the story goes that apparently Leonardo, you know, had somebody with him uh, doing the same pose at the same time. And maybe a student of his or something like that was, um, you know, was Is painting. Is it meant to be a self-portrait? No. Uh, the Mona Lisa? That's one of the rumors, isn't it? The self-portrait? Wow. This is what I would look like as a girl. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm pretty... Uh, yeah, I'm done. That'd be I'm kind the, of selfie-ish. Yeah. So. The original selfie. The, the Mona original selfie. The Mona Lisa. I think we just started oh, a conspiracy theory. We put, we put on medieval uh, filters on this thing, so... <laughs> No, there's, 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 it's not just me making this up. It's, the Mona Lisa is a disguised self-portrait of Leonardo da Vinci. Wow! Right? No like way! Look like this disguised. Woman. <laughs> I can't. It's not very in, well disguised, Leo. I can't go out in public. <laughs> Therefore, oh, I'm going to grow my hair long and wear a dress. Oh <laughs> uh, wow! I, I gotta admit, I've never heard that one. So, hey, friends, I am super excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, it's Dr. Michael Owens, who's the current Business Information Security Officer for Equifax. Uh, but Michael is also a super innovative and collaborative leader who's got over 25 years of experience with all kinds of different organizations. Um, he's been a part of a number of different organizations, currently the president and CEO of the U.S. Global Center for Cyber Policy, where he's doing all kinds of leadership for the federal, state, and local government levels on all kinds of things like cybersecurity, cybercrime, cyber warfare trends and strategies. Um, and he's got extensive experience speaking in a number of different organizations. He's a sought after speaker for things like Avanta summits, um, for all kinds of different transformational events. And one of my favorite things, he's an eight year veteran of the United States Marine Corps, current member of the Marine Corps Auxiliary. Um, so he's got an extensive background serving the community, doing all kinds of great things, bringing cyber awareness to the nation. and we're super excited to talk to you, uh, and I think you've got some news for us as well, Michael. So, how are you doing, and how are things going? Yeah, hey Rob, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, thanks for you guys for having me on the show. Uh, things are things are going well, you know. Still, um, still out plugging every single day, trying to do uh, what I consider, you know, um, defending democracy and and fighting off the bad guys uh, and doing all the right things that necessary to be done. So, but yeah, um, new information on top of everything you mentioned. I 
hate hearing even part of my bio mentioned a lot of times because I feel it sounds a lot better than, you know, the, the work <laughs> I think I actually do. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I plan on taking, all, you know, all of that experience and, and uh, uh, work that I've done throughout the last couple of decades and squarely focus them on continuing to defend <laughs> our democracy and working on, you know, domestic and national security issues uh, by running for secretary of state here in Georgia. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations on that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. I mean, we've met a few times through the the GDS summits, which which is, is a great way to to meet things. But that's yeah, that's it, as Rob said, it's an impressive sort of overview of um, things that you've worked on. You know, so. That's awesome. So yeah, I'm really excited about the opportunity to run for Secretary of State here in Georgia. And for me, in a lot of ways, it's a continuum of the work that I've already been doing. You know, the work that I do at at Equifax, uh, as a security officer, you know, really is is due to the 2017 cybersecurity breach that we had, mm-hmm. um, a company that's headquartered here in Georgia, and you know the opportunity to come in and really help, uh, you know, turn the company around, build an international, you know, global cybersecurity program, and uh, in a lot of ways, that's that's what we need to do, and and not just Georgia, but states around the country. I think we have to take a serious uh, look on our election systems, data security, uh, data privacy as a whole, as it relates to our government systems. As as you guys know, anyone who's worked uh, even a little bit in the public sector, uh, I work for Cisco, one of the one of the companies I worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. I um, work with advanced services with Cisco and as part of public sector. So I help lead that area for the Gulf states. Um, and you know, I can tell you, we went into a lot of government organizations. Uh, and government agencies that was really antiquated. And, you know, they didn't have dedicated security people. The things were outdated. Policy and procedures was really outdated. Um, and, and what happens, right? Everyone knows you wind up being more susceptible to attack. And so, you know, when I see this happening, again, not only with the government, but also with businesses, I mean, it wasn't but a few months ago, every single person on the East Coast of the United States was impacted by Colonial Pipeline. And we see what happened there. So, you know, I view, like I view my work now, even with Equifax as part of national security and domestic security, um, you know, I looked at the most impactful way that I can, that I can have going forward uh, is to run for Secretary of State and do my best to become the next Secretary of State of Georgia so we can implement some of these things that we all know we need to do, that we all talk about, that we all practice within our community, but to be able to bring some of that into the government sphere, particularly in an office such as the Secretary of State's office. Now, I'll say really quickly that uh, a lot of people aren't exactly sure what the Secretary of State does or what that office is. And I, you know, the first thing I explain to people is that it's not a legislative role. It's not that you're going to vote yes or no on the topics of today, right? In the state of Georgia, it is a constitutional office. You're an executive of the state, and mm-hmm. it runs an agency, and that agency is responsible for overall elections for the state and the direction that, and, and setting the setting the tone, if you will, right, and setting the direction, the oversight for the election system, and then uh, a host of other areas as well, such as all the business, uh, all the business registrations for the state run through the Secretary of State's office, as well as a host of other um, agencies and offices and over boards, you know, that, uh, that basically is responsible for doing work throughout the state. So every state's a little bit different when it comes to it, but most in most states, Secretary of State's responsible for the actual election system. That's important for us. Why? Um, because that's that's the cornerstone of democracy, basically. Um, as it relates to us kind of in the in the in the tech and um, information security field, uh, that is, you know, you I look at election systems as the single largest IT deployment that any state has. Right. And it's pretty much a project. Right. You hmm. get prepared for it. They roll out tons of machines across the entire state. You know, people utilize that. So utilization, you know, uh, kind of goes up over a matter of weeks. Then it spikes on Election Day. And then uh, and then you kind of, you know, pack the machines back up. You mothball them and, and you, you know, you end the project and start preparing for next year. So when you think about it in that kind of way, it you know, it, it's a large IT rollout. And, you know, I think in 2017, our election systems nationally was actually declared part of uh, critical infrastructure, you know, just our pipelines or roads or bridges and everything else. So my point is that if it's, if it's declared critical infrastructure, we should be treating it as such. 
which means we should have people leading those efforts that actually yeah. have some idea of what they're doing. No, that makes total and complete sense. And and I love where that's going because um, I think, as you know, right, I'm, I'm an alumni at USC out in Los Angeles. But one of the things they've been doing over the last probably oh, year and a half or so is going state by state and running these kind of meetups on election mm-hmm. security and just having the conversation with community leaders and you know, officials and then uh, the general populace trying to raise awareness. And it's amazing to me how much people don't know, you know, and how much is, is out there. So the idea of, of you getting into this space and bringing a layer of integrity to it, I think is outstanding. Um, I'm curious though, you know, we talk a lot in, in this whole cyberspace about things like zero trust. How do you see that kind of factoring in from the election side, is there sort of a zero trust idea when it comes to that voting unit or where you drop your ballot off after you've uh, printed it out and filled it out and, and that kind of thing? I'm curious how you see those things. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting question and one that I've fielded plenty of times before. You know, I, I look at it from two sides. I look at it from uh, an election security standpoint. Um, i.e. the systems, what I call the actual election uh, ecosystem, right? Because, you know, the, the election system isn't simply about going into the ballot box and, and checking a yes or a no or pressing a screen. You know, again, I could go back to the deployment of the, of the systems itself, right? So as any of us know, um, you know, there's threat vectors that we have to look at. There is policies and procedures about uh, how the system is rolled out. There are issues around encryption and what's not. And then you get to the whole thing of, of, of zero trust, right? Which is really how the network is set up, how the infrastructure is set up and how people interface with that and who's allowed on the network and not basically. So if you look at that through the same lens with an election, you basically have two areas. You kind of focus on, are we securing the election systems themselves and how do we do that? And then you look at those that are interfacing with the system, which is the voters. And how are we verifying and validating that that is who they are? Right. So so we control that that ingress egress from that point. So it's really kind of two areas that we look at in this space. And from the election side, um, there is there is definitely some things that absolutely have to be done and should be done. If we want to you know, kind of integrate zero trust in this is that, um, you know, defining those boundaries, what they are. I mean, the election systems are very much closed systems as they should be. Uh, I think they should be as air gapped as possible. And um, you know, as they kind of roll up from the local precincts to the county level to the state level, uh, there should be checks and balances within there. I can say that, you know, as you said, Rob, I know there's there's still continuing study going on um, and and demos. And sometimes I don't know if it's if it's great or if it's bad, because in some some instance, you need to do that work to be able to expose flaws. Right. And, and make systems better. And it's almost like, you know, um, with the bug bounties. Right. Like. You know, go 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 pound on this thing and see if you can find uh, some vulnerabilities and, and some exploits. But the minute you do that and it becomes public, then like public trust in those systems, Calls, you know, yeah. drop down through 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 the basement. And then you have you know people calling me going, oh my gosh, you know, should I vote? Should I ask for a paper ballot? Should I do this or that? So it's a fine line that we walk to talk about election integrity in a way that um, it say says yes. Any any computing device that is connected to a network is potentially vulnerable. Um, you know, from that extreme all the way to going, well, well, you know, security in the nth degree, and what do we do to have a viable system that works and that is somewhat available to people, right? And I think on the you know on the voter side, um, you know, a hot topic is is uh, really much more of a political one, which is around voter ID and how does someone, how do we ensure that someone is who they say they are when they go into the polling location, you know, is someone voting more than once or twice? And I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest from my perspective, that is where a lot of the hyperbole is, right? That's where a lot of the, 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 the sensationalism is, is going on. Um, I think we need to focus more on the actual election ecosystem and ensuring that those devices have the right amount of security they need and the processes that we put in place end to end actually work. So, so Michael, it, it's, it's almost like, it, it sounds like you need to do a, a level of threat modeling at the very front of all of that, to look at all the different ways that things happen. 
So what, what kind of changes do you think you need to make in, in res respect to that? Is, is, is that something that, that, that you are thinking about doing? Are there things that you, you think you can make a difference around? Yeah. You know, uh, that, that's, that's a good question, Colin. And I, um, you know, I kind of defer a little bit to say I, I'll, there are things I know concretely through experience and being close to the election process. And I'll just throw out some relevant examples. Um, I think in the 2018 election, um, and this is this is local because again, it's firsthand mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, the actual poll books, which is which is the books that uh, are the tablets, if you will, that um, voters actually, when you first walk in, that you register, right? You show your ID, they register you, they look you up, they check you off. Um, there is a situation to where those poll books were issued out to all the polling managers the night before the election. And um, as they left, one poll manager stopped at a grocery store on their way home. Uh, <laughs> that device was stolen. Uh, you know, someone probably looked inside, you know, the car and saw what they thought were iPads or something, and they stole them, you know. Um, so obviously, there's a problem. Uh, I later found out there's a larger problem in that those devices, were, the data was not encrypted. Right oh, now, no. you know, let's let's, let's oh, no. talk about this. This is like right? uh, cybersecurity one hundred and one. <laughs> yeah, you you have voter data, right? I mean, this is PII class five data, right? Um, for for every voter in the county, basically, and they're on they're on mobile devices that's not encrypted, right? Um, yeah. Again, you, I, or, or probably no one that's listening would allow that to happen, right? We yeah. at least raise some serious eyebrows. Um, so so that number one, you know, I've also seen instances where. I've gone into polling locations and I've literally seen like these, you know, really consumer grade Linksys hubs, basically, for a lack of a better word, um, just kind of lying on the floor. And I'm sitting there looking at them going, oh, there's four ports that are available. You know, uh, yeah. I'm sure there's it's no the port on a consumer Linksys device that's administratively down. Right. So how oh, about just, goodness. you know plugging in whatever type of, of, of rogue access device you want on it and, and have a great day. So, you know, I, I have some lived experiences just through, you know, when I go into the, um, you know, when I go into a polling location and, and I go to vote in person every time because I want that experience, right? I want to, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a certified information officer, right? I mean, a manager. So I, I look for stuff like that. I go in going, what are the vulnerabilities I can kind of point out here? So, so yes, Colin, there's some, there's some very distinct specific things that we can do um, as it relates <laughs> to that. But, you know, yeah, I, I want to, I'd like to audit the entire system end to end and not, and not in the way that a lot of people in the public right now are talking about auditing, right? They're really talking about auditing the, the election results. Results, I yeah, talk yeah. About you want to look the at the process. Yeah, I want to talk about yeah. auditing the process itself. I want to talk about auditing yeah. the end to end, right? Where votes are, are recorded, where they're tabulated, right? Where they're, where they're aggregated, where they're reported. Each mm -hmm. one of those areas is somewhere where something could go wrong, right? And, mm -hmm. and I, I think the vast majority of the public, I mean, perfectly understanding, but they're missing a lot of those pieces, right? Um, and those are areas where we can truly make the election process um, more safe, right? Safer. And then I think we have the opportunity to use uh, data modeling and, and, and things that we know, um, you know, a little more over on the IT side, but from, uh, you know, how we respond to election locations and how many machines versus the number of people that are showing up, you know, and, and the same way that airports use data modeling, you know, to determine how long it takes someone to get through an airport, right, and, and get gate to gate and things mm -hmm. like that. I think we could, we right. could deploy some of that same technology when uh, looking at uh, you know, elect the day of elections, right? And so we can don't have people standing in line for two, three, five, you know, sometimes 10 hours. Um, that's oh, that's wow. just insane. <laughs> yeah, we, we had instances in Georgia where yeah. people were literally waiting in line 10 hours to vote. That's and crazy. I tell people, I said, you know, that's kind of like, um, that's like going to Google and typing in, um, you know, the Braves baseball score from last night. And waiting, you know, six minutes and twenty-seven seconds to get a result. You know, we used no to have to do that back in the day. <laughs> yeah. No one is going to share Wait for the picture to load. Watching and waiting for six minutes, and and you know, and that's that's basically what it's like telling someone to go vote, and they look at this line, and they're going absolutely not right, and and that is a function that I clearly think that through technology, 
we can be able to at least help rectify. Like the traveling salesman problem, but instead it's the traveling voters problem. How do we get enough people through the doors? Well, and and be able to go to a different polling location, right? Oh, I, I think that's yeah. a great idea, Michael. Like being able to look in your community and say, here's all the polling places and wait times. I mean, we do this for theme parks. Yes, we do it for hospitals. Around here, we have little billboards. You've got a 38-minute wait. I'm not going there. Yes, I'm not sick. This is my point, right? And and there are some there's some nonprofits that actually kind of jumped in this space and tried to say, hey, we're going to use like real time you know, um, information from the ground to be able to feed into a system. I don't know if anybody out there uses a gas buddy, you know, but it's kind of like mm. that. It's like people report what the gas prices are at different gas stations. And, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a simplistic mm. approach. So again, you know, a little bit of innovation would not hurt, you know? Mm. And, and again, I think a lot of people, no, not a, not yeah, a lot of people, but again, where's the focus at, right? And a lot of the discussion around this is on, you know, uh, the, again, the hyperbole around, voting fraud and the idea that, you know, these election machines, machines themselves may be hacked, right? And I'm going, there's a thousand and one other ways to make this entire process better, right? Mm -hmm. By using a lot of technology, a lot of, you know, security uh, policies and processes that we put in place everywhere else that we can turn around and use in this space. And to me, it just really shows how antiquated, right, the, the office is and how we're not using you know, public-private partnerships, how we're not staying abreast of best practices in other areas to be able to put to use in the space. Yeah. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me, too, is like that's an area that when we talk about the, the focus on voter ID and registration and that kind of thing, that's the part we're all personally connected to. And so it continues to come down to what is it that impacts me? Right. Standing in line, having that voting experience. I'm with you. I like going to the polls and having that experience when my kids were younger, mm -hmm. we would bring them with us so that they could see it and be part of it. Right. That's democracy yes. in action. Um, but as people continue right on this ever increasing march, it seems towards trading privacy for convenience. And, you know, I, I'm in California. Right. So we just went through the recall election bits and one of the things the state introduced was being able to print out your ballot at home, you know, and there was a lot of conversation around what that could do and what that looks like. And and so I'm curious um, your thoughts, Michael, not so much on just, you know, printing out ballots and that kind of thing, but this place where, you know, we want to make it easier. We want to give access and, and all of those kinds of things to make voting a simple thing. Um, but that, that trade-off between privacy and convenience and then integrity around it and the balance there, that, that seems to be, I think, what most people are, are sure. missing, right? The, the sort of trust. And, and so what you're doing, raising transparency on the back end of that, I think, is so critical in establishing that layer of trust um, that says, hey, yeah, you know, we, we have integrity. And when we tell you that this was the result of an election or these are the things that are going on, you, you can believe that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, first off, I, I may be a little biased here, but I think when you can tell someone you have a certified information security auditor, right, at the helm, it does add a little bit more integrity to it, right? Just number one. Um, I, I And I also believe that when we focus on those things to make people you know, to restore their faith, if you will. And I don't mean that in a religious context, actually, you know, but it's a, it's the belief in the democracy that it works, right? And, and no matter what side of the aisle you're on, there's a fundamental thing that you want it to work, right? And, and for it to work, you have to have belief and trust in it, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, really honing in on some of those basics um, will, will get us a long way. And it's not just about trading convenience for privacy. It's also efficiency, Right. It's also um, being able to add more trust and integrity into the system. So, you know, one of the things about printing it off at home. Um, yeah. We, you know, we have OCR scanners. There's a lot of things you do. people do want to print it off so they can see, you know, with their eyeballs what it says I voted for. But then I tell people, well, then you take that printed thing, you take and drop it off and it goes through an OCR scanner. Right. Well, <laughs> You know, we all know the scanner could be compromised. So just the, because of the fact that you see it printed off on a piece of paper doesn't necessarily equal the fact that it's going to be more secure, right? It's just like writing a check. People that still write checks, 
you know, long gone are the days that that check actually gets mailed to that bank. And, you know, it's no, it gets scanned into a system and, and there it goes. So there's an educational part to this. Um, but I think it's it's more around trying to push us forward. Right. I really want to be innovative, um, use educational awareness to you know, talk about what the possibilities are that we can do because you know the same concerns that are out there, you know, and and to kind of bring this back a little bit, if if we've you know Target, Yahoo, Toyota, all these companies that have breaches before, we still shop at those places, you know. I, there, there's not a place I walk into and uh-huh. someone hasn't had an identity theft scenario happen to them, but yet they still use debit cards, they still use credit cards, right? So this idea that you know. We all know progress doesn't go in a straight line, right? There's there's going to be problems, but I do want to focus on on ha- allowing us to move forward um, with our election process and and as you said, Rob, expanding the access to the ballot, which is what true democracy is about. But doing that in a safe manner in which you know we continue to test, and you know I think the hallmark of of being security. Uh, professionals, particularly at this point, as it intersects with business, or in this case, intersects with the general public, it's about managing risk. You know, we talk about that in a lot of areas. Right. It's about managing risk. So, so we have to do the exact same thing when it comes to this, right? We look at we look at the elections uh, ecosystem. We look at the the voting public. Uh, we look at the trust that we have to have in the system, and then we manage that risk. Right? We mitigate. We manage. Um, and I think part of that is we can we can increase the efficiency, which means a lot less time spending in in lines waiting. But we also do things like you mentioned before, which I, I do want to uh, pay notice to. We talked about the ability to be able to vote at any location, right? If these machines are being mm-hmm. tabulated and they're being scanned and they're over an air gap private network, does it truly matter if you go to your own local precinct anymore? That is an antiquated model that's based on having, right. you know, paper ballots and everyone having to, you know, check a, a decentralized role, right? When I say role, like in, in, a, in a voting role, a muster, we don't have that anymore, right? You have, you have centralized presence where um, anyone should be able to go to any location in the county, if not any location in the state, and be able to vote. And when you vote, it's as simple as this. Your vote is being tagged with your local precinct, right? So the aggregations that happen could very easily be, uh, you know, aggregated and dispersed back to your home precinct, if you will, but allowing people to be able to vote in any precinct. I know people, particularly here in, in the Atlanta metro area, that, you know, work an hour and a half away from where they live. Again, making voting right. really, really hard for someone when you got to try to drop off your kids at school, you know, whether you're catching public transportation or you just got to hop on one of our, our infamous, you know, interstates to to drive on the other side of town. So doing something as simple as that could drastically increase voter participation. Um, and, you know, and I'm a firm believer that through technology, we'll be able to do that. And we don't kind of regress because we have, you know, fears about um, the potential security gaps that we may have in our election systems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for me anyway, one of my favorite things to point out is it's not necessarily the machine to the code or anything else like that. That's your biggest flaw or your biggest hole. It's your people. It's the sure. just regular, regular folk who click on that phishing link that says, yeah, I want to, I want to get my free, I don't know, hundred, $100 for this little link. I don't know. Um, but it, in many ways, we grow up and we're told, you know, if you get caught on fire, you stop, drop, and roll. I don't know about you, but I can't count how many times I've been caught on fire and needed to use that information. <laughs> it's pretty much zero, <laughs> but we all know it. And for whatever reason, we know to stop, drop, and roll Sure. if you're caught on fire. So are there some analogs to that for practicing cybersecurity that we really need people to, you know, stop, drop, and roll when it comes to, say, anything in the cybersecurity world? That, um, from your perspective, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's funny. You, you mentioned you mentioned stop, drop, and roll. I mean, um, you know, DHS, you know, has the, um, and, I, and I've, I've worked with them before on some things. They have the, uh, what is it, stop, think, and connect, right? Um, and, and and that's that's kind of a phrase that I use even, even at, at my office, you know, because uh, to your earlier point, a, a lot of, the security incidences really come from people trying to do their job, 
you know, um, and non-malicious things that uh, that have no mal intent that winds up being a, a huge problem, right? And, and I always tell people like, good intent isn't good enough, you know that that alone that alone doesn't carry today. So, you know, really, my biggest thing is is looking at this from a holistic point of view, and uh, and really approaching it in a way that uh, as a problem, and we kind of leave no stone unturned, and we really look at the entire um, system and see what we can do about it. And and I also say it's not just uh, we're talking a lot about elections because. Um, that's what a lot of people think about when, when they talk about Secretary of State's office. But uh, one of the one another thing I really want to focus on is the fact that the Secretary of State's office is also responsible for um, you know all the business registrations and really, literally helping people start businesses in the state. And you know, a, a, one of the um, a number that gets thrown around a lot is is you know like somewhere between like sixty and sixty five percent of small businesses do not survive a cyber attack, right? Like a full blown cyber attack or ransomware attack, a lot of small businesses just flat out go out of business. They, they can't continue. And so I want to use the Secretary of State's office as like a centralized hub where we can at least, you know, we can, Rob, we can start some cybersecurity awareness campaigns, right? This is October, shout out to Cybersecurity Awareness Month. But if you, if you are at the helm of a centralized office where all businesses have to go through, right? Perfect opportunity to be able to launch, you know, whether it's task force or, or, uh, awareness campaigns to say, oh yeah, hey, guess what? You're starting, you want to start up a new business. Great. We here are the things that we need you to make sure that you're doing, right? You mm-hmm. don't know what MFA means. Let's send you to this video. You know, I mean, it's a great idea to start thinking number one about how are you going to safeguard your data? Um, you know, how do you classify data? Whatever those basics are, you know, we talk, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we talk about what cyber hygiene is, basic cyber hygiene. It's like, can we give that to every small business that starts? You know, like um, just uh, recently, just last week, week before, I think uh, I was invited to speak at a, uh, to give a keynote for a uh, nonprofit summit, right? Basically by a chamber of commerce uh, in, in North Georgia, got together a bunch of nonprofit leaders to talk about cybersecurity. You know, in, in an area where they see the news, you know, they understand that it may or may not affect them. Not sure, maybe. Um, but, you know, it's a great opportunity to kind of talk to them about the fact that, hey, yeah, you're starting businesses. The last thing you want is to have your reputation destroyed, you know, to have uh, information from trusted people that are donating to you or, or that you're partnering with to have that information, you know, for sale somewhere. And, and, you know, we realize that, you know, I say that, um, you know, everybody is uh, everybody's a target and, and anyone can be a victim. And hmm. that's kind of the message that I try to throw out there just to no matter what size your business, no matter what industry you're in. Um, you know, I have a I have a friend of mine that owns a towing company and, you know, he called me and says, hey, like, I think we've had we've, we've been ransomware like. I got this thing on the screen that says I need to, I need I need to go to a Bitcoin machine. You know, and <laughs> he just like, sent us four million dollars worth like, of Bitcoin. It's like telling no people for Like, what do they want with <laughs> my data? And you know, I was like, you know what? They probably don't want anything with your data, but they know that you want it, and they know that you you know. So, it's important to you, yeah. 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 So, you know, th- this idea that you know, I have a, this grand idea that again, through kind of innovating and transforming the office, we can use it as a centralized hub, if you will to start um, providing some of this baseline information that quite frankly, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs out there, they have that great entrepreneurial spirit. You know, they have a clothing line they want to start or they have a, you know, they, they, they bake, they're amazing, you know, cook. They, they bake some great cakes. They want to start this business, um, but they just aren't getting the tools. And so, you know, I can say nonprofits and small businesses, but, you know, we can also look at the largest scale of this and talk about our Fortune 500s. And, you know, start to ensuring that we can help facilitate putting some public private partnerships in place to make sure we're helping facilitate. And, you know, maybe, you know, down the road one day we can start to talk about putting some teeth, um, some sort of teeth into things that we know that all corporations should be doing um, that for whatever reason, they're too busy. You don't want to stop production. You know, we, we know all the excuses as to why certain patches didn't get applied, you know, or that they don't have a CISO even, you know, hired, you know, there's some things that we can do across the gambit. I think when it comes to business, 
um, that we all know is is standard practice, good practice. But for whatever reason, a lot of a lot of companies just don't do it. Um, a lot of things out there are um, best practices. They are frameworks. They're guidelines. But there are very few mandates out there. And I don't want to start talking about mandating companies to do this or that. What we've got to start is is making everyone aware that they're a potential victim. Um, and that, yes, I don't care what business you're in, you're a potential threat. And I want to make sure I use that office to be able to, again, be that centralizing point to where we can start doing some of that. That's excellent. So just curious, because I'm obviously not from the U.S. and the rest of you are. So and I don't know how things work, but, you know, obviously the, you, you have a number of states. Do you actually collaborate with the other states on best practices as well? Is, is Or is it or are you really isolated and it's, it's up to you as an individual to work all this stuff out. How does how does it work at a higher level? You know, there are great opportunities to collaborate. There are um, there's organizations or associations like Secretary of State's uh, Association. So it's kind of you know that that can get mm -hmm. together and collaborate on ideas. Um, there's also just where I think we're starting to see more, which is you know threat threat information right and collaboration on threat intel um mm -hmm. you know i think there are areas around um reciprocity when it comes to data and information like um you know being able to share information um around uh when someone moves right um is that information known? I always crack the joke. It's like, well, if debt collectors can know that you moved to a new address and got a new phone number, <laughs> the Secretary of State should be able to know that information as well. Like, come on, you know, again, kind of talking about, you know, I say it tongue in cheek, but, you know, part of it is around, um, you know, public private uh, partnerships and collaboration. I do think that's very important and something that we can do a lot more of. And, and yeah, we, we don't do a lot of that. I, you know, I think, you know, from just speaking to the United States, um, in different to maybe other countries, you know, yes, we do pride ourselves on individuality and, and states' rights, I think has always kind of been something that you hear uh, talked about a lot. And, you know, the, the whole idea, I'm not going to get in that conversation about states' rights, but it does yeah. throw up some challenges sometimes when sharing information across state lines. I think that's kind of what you're getting to, Colin. Oh, um, no, it's more, it was more in, you know, obviously, you know, that that's that's data and what it's more about best practices and process. It's just like a lot of what you're talking about makes common sense. And it's all about, you know, looking at the threats and looking at the process. And it's more like, you know, if, you know, there's 50 of you got together and had, you know, shared ideas on best practices, it makes a lot more sense. It's yeah. kind of like why, why we get companies together to, to share much sure. like what happened at the GDS summit, I guess. So it's, it is just wondering right. if it happens at, at, at that at that level. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, maybe it does a bit. You know. So. Yeah, it, it it does a bit. It does. I mean, I I would really, you know, uh, when I get elected, I, I'm really going to focus on, of course, sharing best practice, sharing information. Um, unfortunately, you tend to see much more of the political uh, hmm. things being shared and ideas more so than from an operational side of of information being shared. But, you know, I'd love nothing more than to, you know, invite in other experts um, that are that are in the different fields and related and adjacent to. Right. There's again, there's a lot of challenges that can be solved um, by reaching out to, um, you know, different companies that are out there. You know, I mean, how many companies are out there that are doing, you know, uh, threat modeling? You know, how many companies are out there that are doing, you know, uh, application security reviews? I mean, there's there's tons of companies out there doing that. And, and just because this is elections doesn't mean it's different. We're still using computers. We're still using OSs. We're still using, you know, Ethernet last time I checked, right? So there's a lot of opportunity we have to take best practices, not just from other states, but from actual practitioners. You know, I mean, this is, I live in Atlanta. I mean, we have Georgia Tech right here, one of the premier institutions of the world when it comes to engineers. You know, I, I as a proud alum of Georgia Tech, I'll throw that out there. Um, you know, one of my first calls is going to be over there to the university going, let's get some eyeballs on this and let's figure out how we can make this better. You know, um, there's a lot of companies out there um, that are doing really good work, you know, in a, in a lot of spaces where there's zero trust or identity. I just, you know, I just talked to a CEO, I reached out to a CEO of uh, one of the fastest growing uh, digital privacy companies in the world that happens to be headquartered here in, in Georgia just last week. 
I'm, I'm already starting to work to build a relationship with this guy and his company because I'm like, when I am elected, right, we're going to talk. <laughs> you know, we're going to talk beforehand. But, you know, I, I want to start now. Like, again, you're offering your consultant advice and best practices to the largest companies in the world, right? The most advanced, technically complex situations that are out there. I want to be able to hone some of that skill, right? Some of that experience and to bring into what we're doing. And it's the, it's just a fact, again, I'll kind of go back to, you know, my ding on it is that it's, it's an old school bureaucracy, right? That's so slow and changing that we have not adopted a lot of these processes. We keep a lot of things closed. A lot of decisions are wind up being much more political in nature than they are in, in sound policy or, or process. You know, and I think we can change that. I, th I think I think the people want us to change that. I think people understand there are challenges that are out there. And, you know, when they hear me talk about tried and true ways, right, things that we're doing in other areas where we're solving challenges that, that people are scratching their heads over, I, I think that energizes a lot of people about what the possibilities are. No, absolutely. And I love I love the fact that, you know, your first call is going to be the Georgia Tech. That's, that's outstanding, right? Because... Um, there is that movement. You know, I was at uh, Arizona State this last week. I've talked to USC and Arizona as well. Right. And there's a there's a big desire, right, to get people into this space, into cyber and into these areas where it influences so much of our lives and and breaking down the barriers um, and things like that. So all of that is is outstanding. Right. Getting it easier for people. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the tried and true stuff. It was interesting sitting in a room, you know, where people are thinking, well, how do we eliminate some of the barriers and what do we do and what are the certifications, right? And so there's this idea of building out an apprenticeship and, and somebody throws a, a graph up and the first thing you see is like, well, the number one certification is a CISSP. Yeah. And we're all like, that's not entry level. Right? Great entry level point. And it yes. goes back to, yeah, exactly. Right. And it goes right back to that notion of, well, we've never done it that way before. Right. And so this, what you're talking about in getting awareness and people you know, on board um, is just huge in being able to, to lower some of those entry barriers and, and make it, um, you know, make cyber hygiene, right. A more normal practice. And it's, and as we do that personally, then I think it's so much easier to start extending that, you know, across these larger systems and places, um, you know, and, and build the trust that we're looking for and getting folks to share. Right. Oh, yeah. I think that's the other big thing is one one university to another. And that's why I talked to a bunch of them is get them to talk to each other. Right. We you've solved some things. I've solved some things together. We can solve a lot of things. Right. So I'm, I'm super excited for when you get elected, because I know you're going to be driving those things. It's going to be pretty awesome. And so one of the biggest problems that we have is people um, not only being, you know, the victims of a very smart social engineering or phishing attacks or whatever the case may be, um, but also getting enough smart people to defend against those attacks and actually join the fight, if you will, <laughs> against the bad guys or the bad actors. Um, so what what do you think, in, in your experience, uh, what are the barriers that we need to or should remove so that they can pursue cyber as a career or something that they should be doing or want to do? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Chris. Um, you know, uh, two two aspects of that I'll, I'll talk about. Um, one is something I'm, I'm doing now, and uh, Rob kind of mentioned it when he's teeing me up, is that, um, you know, I, this earlier this year, I um, got selected to... Uh, joined the United States Marine Corps Cyber Auxiliary, right? A lot of people out there aren't familiar with it, it's, uh, but it speaks to this. It speaks to the challenge that not only the Marine Corps, but our entire military system has with uh, having cyber warriors or IT or, or, or information security um, uh, troops, soldiers, seamen, whatever is out there, right? The, the, the talent just isn't there. Um, and so, you know, I joined as a way to kind of give back and to make sure, you know, I'm consulting, I'm advising, doing training on, you know, and all different types of things come up. I mean, these are guys that, you know, they, they're, they're joining the military right out of high school and they're trying to become information security professionals, you know, and, 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 it, and it's tough. So I, I see it and I'm helping directly in the military aspect from that. Um, and then obviously we also see it in the, in the private sector as well, you know, and Rob kind of mentioned it earlier with the fact that 
you know, stop asking for stop asking for people to have a CISSP and you know, ten years in you know Google Cloud security and and asking them to be an analyst, right? Stop. You know, part of that is on us. Um, you know, I I tend to think it's especially a lot of us, and I'll throw myself in that group that that's been doing you know cybersecurity before anybody called it cybersecurity, right? Um, you know, I was you know a desktop engineer. I was a you know, a closet, you know, I was the guy that was going in with the toner and checking stuff. And then I started shutting ports down and I was doing firewall engineering, you know, and then it's like, oh, you realize like, oh, I've been doing security this whole time, you know? Um, and so I think for a lot of us, it's been around that long. We do have some expectations when it comes to someone in the field, you know, meaning they understand the difference between, you know, cat five and cat six and RJ45, you know, like stuff that, you know, if you're coming up now, like having an A plus, what, what is that? And why do I, why would I ever need that? Um, so I think it's, some of that is on us to modernize and what we're looking for, right? Um, I also believe, I, I look at this, cybersecurity, information security uh, is a lot like other fields. Our field is so diverse. Um, on my team right now, I want analysts, I want good communications people. I want solid project managers, right? Um, I want people to have backgrounds in, in coding. And, um, you know, I want all those people on my team. Now, I have a kind of a multidisciplinary team. Um, but I say that to say that we can start looking for talent in a multitude of other areas, right? And that's, to me, that's one of our keys to be able to um, you know, really grow the field and bring other people in. And, you know, and I think people outside of the field have no real understanding what it is. They still think like, number one, we all write code, right? We're, we're all programmers, which we're not. But I think a lot of people think that if I don't write code, I can't be in, a, you know, in, in, in cyber and in security. And that's just not true. So, you know, I put a lot of it on us. Yeah. So, so really I put a lot of it on, on us, Chris, right? Like, we have to have realistic expectations around what people should come in the door with. We should also expand our our um, audience or our potential uh, people when we're, when we're looking for new talent, right? Look out to project management teams. You know, look out into you know non tech areas. Obviously, look at our look at a lot of our, our IT folks, um, and then give them a pathway to come in. And I say this: I when people ask me, and I get asked almost every week. Um, the same type question in some way, shape, or form. I go, what are you doing now? And what do you like to do? Right? Because um, if you don't like being sedentary, staring at screens all day, being a SOC analyst may not be for you. <laughs> you know, if you like talking to customers all the time and you like, you know, kind of, you know, dealing with, uh, with things that change a lot, I might be able to find a customer facing role for you. That's going to work. Um, so I, I think we have to do that too. Let's let's not because again, people are coming in. A lot of people are asking to come into cyber. Don't really know what they're what the options are, what they're coming into, right? Um, so again, yeah, I put a lot. It's of almost like asking, I want to be better. a doctor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> should we, we should we should probably write a book on it, you know? But first, <laughs> first and foremost, we've got to stop with these outrageous job descriptions, you know. That yeah, I I would like that kind of person on my team too. But if we find them and we do hire them, an entry level, guess what? They're not going to stay long because they're going to be yeah. like, man, what what what's going on? You know, I was an IT director, you know, and now I'm a security analyst, so I'm in security, but you know, I'm I'm updating tickets every day. You know, <laughs> they're security tickets, but I'm updating tickets. You know, they're not going to be yeah. happy. You know, so. So no. we've got to make sure we, we've got to do a much better job. So, so that's, that's fantastic advice. I mean, the it's it's so it's so difficult. I love I love the that you met, sort of called out the CISSP thing because I, I I have I have lots of problems with it. Principally, I felt I find it's 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 old and it's antiquated as well because it's 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 sort of from a sort of military sort of um, perspective, which is fine, but it's it, it doesn't suit the modern world and that insist that people have it is is crazy but yeah um hey, i also think part of that colin is like um again going back to you know when i was kind of coming up 
Um, you know, I can remember, you know, literally building servers. I was building exchange servers. I was building DNS servers. Um, I was, you know, I had my own firewall built. I literally had, you know, cable so I could build a frame relay network in my house. Um, hmm. You know, and and so I was doing all these kind of things. And, you know, when it came to taking a, a certification or an exam, like, you, you know, I was literally going to kind of build that thing out and kind of work through it. Landscape's changed a lot since then. You know, there are boot camps. There are, you know, all kind of places you can go and might, you know, get what a question set is going to look like that really looks like the answer set, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that, you know, having a certification nowadays doesn't exactly, in my eyes, and I realize it's just me, but it doesn't necessarily carry the weight that it once did um, because I know there's various avenues to go to you know, you can go to a boot camp for a few weeks and, you know, they, there's companies out there that are guaranteeing you, you know, 98% you're going to pass this exam. And I'm going, wow, you know, you know how many times I took the CCIE before I passed that? Um, <laughs> I won't say, but let's just say it was more than once or twice, you know, <laughs> you know, but Less again, than because, you know, I, I really, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't what, single digits. I will say that it wasn't single digits. But the but the, the other thing, the other thing I'll add is try and get your CISSP results if you don't actually pay for it. And you'll find that they, they yeah, it's actually a bit, a bit difficult to get your results. You know, so. <laughs> we do have to understand that the certification, yeah, right? I mean, it's a multi-million-dollar business, so um, you you would you would expect things to to change a little bit, shall I say? Right. I mean, I'm not completely jaded on 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 certifications, though. If anybody is out there that's listening, um, I to me, I look at certifications as someone who's willing to put in the extra effort. Right. Especially someone that's up and coming, that's willing to put in the extra effort, the the weekends, the nights to uh, try to do some learning on their own. Right. And so when someone says they have a certification, I'm like, well, tell me about it. How did you earn that certification? Yeah. Right. That I'm, I'm, a lot of times I'm more curious into how they went about getting, gaining that certification than the actual piece of paper itself. Right. And so yeah, I it's, it's kind of it. like getting a degree or a master's or whatever. You've, you've shown that you can apply yourself to that level. That, that proves to me you're a good candidate for this. You know, it's that kind of thing makes more sense to me. So, right. Um, yeah. But Michael, I think I think we're 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 out of time here, and really appreciate you joining us. Um, I I don't know if you have any sort of passing thoughts, but um, it's been great talking to you. I've learned stuff today, so I mean, because it's an area that I've never really thought about greatly, but it's 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 interesting how how the parallels really exist between um, all all manners of process and business. You know. Yeah. No. Th thank you guys for having me on. That is that is kind of the genesis of what led me to run to be Georgia's next secretary of state. Uh, mm. Because as, as all of us practitioners are out there, understand, you know, the, the challenges and, you know, I'm simply overlaying that into a system that could use a lot of updating could use a lot of modernization. Mm. And now that the talk is all about, uh, you know, the, the threats that are out there and, and the potential fraud and, and hacking of systems, um, and again, looking at our election systems as critical infrastructure, critical infrastructure being the cornerstone for democracy, uh, we absolutely should have people that are leading those agencies, leading those offices that actually have that real world experience in dealing with those challenges. So, again, that, that's why I'm running. I'm happy to you know, bring along every member of the, the technology community, the, the information security community. To me, this is our opportunity to kind of you know, flex our muscles a bit to um, have some input and really come to the forefront because this is a this is an issue that's that's um, gripping this country, you know. And again, mm. I'll kind of go back to not only within the election systems, ransomware is 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 still running rampant out there. And um, you know, I you know the the Secretary of State's office is a centralizing point where we can actually start to you know at, at least amplify some of these best practices and making sure these companies are doing the things they need. Uh, to mitigate some of these attacks because we're all tired of, you know, every week hearing about another company, um, you know, that that's fell victim to, uh, to these these attacks that are out there. So, yeah, I'm asking, you know, everyone out there in, in our community to use this as an opportunity to, um, you know, look at my platform, get behind me. Uh, you know, you can go to my website at www 
www.owensforgeorgia.com. Uh, you know, please go to LinkedIn, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn as, as uh, you guys can attest. I'm, I'm always on LinkedIn. It's a great way to get in touch with me. I'm, I'm super responsive through that. Um, elections is a grind. There's no doubt. I mean, running for office is, is not for the faint of heart, for sure. I think even more particularly when you are running um, from a position of you are trying to raise awareness and really bring in something new. I don't want to say counterculture, but, you know, we are definitely um, taking a little bit of a different tack to this because we are um, viewing the specifically on how we can transform and innovate a, a system that's just been outdated. So, um, again, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, all the regular social media. But go to my website, owensforgeorgia.com, and I look forward to hearing from everybody. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thanks again. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you guys. I appreciate you uh, for having me on. Let me have a spotlight. Yeah, that was excellent. That gives, brings us to the end of another great episode. It was fantastic talking to Michael. Really enjoyed that. Um, it's wonderful. So Chris, Rob, thanks again, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having, of course.